You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. On February 10th, I had the pleasure of hosting the 64th U.S. Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, in front of 2,500 listeners to discuss her New York Times bestseller, Fascism, A Warning. The following includes clips from our live show that I thought our listeners would find interesting. I want to thank you for telling everybody who I am. Uh, because not everybody always knows. Not long ago, I was coming back from China, and Chicago was the first port of entry, and I was there getting undressed for the security people, and I put my stuff down on the conveyor belt, and the lady behind me said, so where'd you get all your screw-top bottles? My bottles all leak. And I said, well, I got them at the container store. And then I was going through the magnetometer. The TSA guard looked at me, and he said, oh, my God, it's you. <coughs> he said. I'm from Bosnia, and we all love you in Bosnia. And if it weren't for you, there wouldn't be a Bosnia. And you're always welcome in Bosnia. And then he said, can I have my picture taken with you? And I said, sure. And so the whole line gets screwed up. And I go back, and the lady of the screwed top bottle says, so what exactly happened here? And I said, well, I used to be Secretary of State. And she said, of Bosnia? <laughs> so thank you. Well, I think Dallas certainly knows who you are. Congratulations. So fascism is a term that is certainly used very often. And in fact, I just saw in this morning's New York Times this headline. It's an anti-fascist thing how an obscure German soccer team gained a Brooklyn cult. <laughs> so it really does show that people use this term all the time without really understanding how to define it. And that was the exercise that you put your Georgetown students through with hot plates of lasagna. So talk with us about the process. Well, first of all, I think I'm, I am delighted to be here. And Jim, good to be with you again. Um, I do think part of the problem is people throw the term around um, just loosely. You know, anybody you disagree with is a fascist. Mm -hmm. and then um, the teenage boy whose father doesn't let him drive says that the father's a fascist. So um, I think that it has been something that's just been thrown around. I did get my students, my graduate students, to talk about what they thought it was. And I think that they came up with a lot of very good concepts. First of all, it's not an ideology. It's a process for taking power and keeping it. And the elements of it are that um, it is based on a, a sense of some kind of anger or irritation by the population. Um, and a leader uh, comes out who um, is somebody who identifies himself with a group that is a large group that is uh, angry at what is happening, kind of, mm -hmm. it's hard to describe, nationalist, tribal, some kind of a group like that, at the expense of another group. Uh, and it is that division that is part of what fascism is about because what is needed at a time when people are disillusioned and angry are leaders that look for common answers um, and instead a fascist leader will exacerbate that division. So that's one part. The other part is a complete disrespect for the press uh, and the media is the basis of democracy, uh, mm -hmm. free press, but uh, those who don't like the press, that's another part of it. Third is a complete disregard for institutions, deciding that various institutions, especially the judicial branch, 
is one that is really undoing various aspects. And then I think another part that they talked about is the certainty of the leader and the capability of using rallies and propaganda to get people motivated, working off of the business of that the other is the enemy, the fear factor. Mm -hmm. And then finally, I think the dispositive part was the use of violence. So in other words, a bully with an army. And so I think that that is kind of the definition, the best one that I could put out as a result of talking to my students. I do think that kind of captures it. But the main thing is that it is not an ideology, mm -hmm. that it is a process that has worked through exacerbating the divisions that have come as a result of some loss in war or anger or divisions in society due to economic inequality. Which is certainly something we're seeing around the world right now. Very much so. The subtitle of the book is A Warning. And I think it's important to know that you were planning to write this book, whomever won in 2016. Why did you think it was so important to write the book when you did? Part of it was because I was beginning to see more and more divisions, not only in the United States, but all over in terms of, I had spent a lot of time looking at Central and Eastern Europe after mm -hmm. the fall of the wall. You could see it there. You can see it in uh, various countries that I looked at already. I do teach and I talk about international relations and you really could see the fact that there were more and more countries that felt that they had not been able to provide their people with a proper living. And some of the issues had to do with technology, the loss of jobs as a result of technology. Some was rising nationalism, but it was all there. And I think actually it has gotten worse in the last few years. But I definitely began to see things happening. I was studying the Arab Spring, a number of different aspects where you could see populations that did not like what was going on and were expressing them, uh, their views, and sometimes in more and more violent ways, in anger and in propaganda. I think where it's easy to get confused is what's the difference between a fascist and an authoritarian? Because you've said, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, about some of the characters you met throughout your career and afterwards who are not fascists but are authoritarian leaders. Well, I think the deal is that every fascist is authoritarian, but not every authoritarian is fascist. And of the countries that I talk about, um, that, that are now, I mean, Hungary, Poland, Turkey, the Philippines, Venezuela, North Korea, Russia. The only one that I really think is a fascist is Kim Jong-un in North Korea, because it's a combination of violence. He's had a number of people executed that um, he thought were not supporting him. Um, then the violence of putting people into work uh, labor camps, isolation, uh, really uh, keeping them hungry, and so really kind of total control. But the other leaders that I talk about have various elements of that definition that I had. And one of the leaders that you feature in the book and that you've met with a few times is Vladimir Putin. So what would have to happen for him to be defined in your manner as a fascist? Well, let me just say <clears throat> uh, I have met him. I first met him uh, with President Clinton when we were at APEC in New Zealand, and mm -hmm. he was not yet fully president, and he was trying to be very ingratiating. Uh, and later, <clears throat> what he did was develop uh, kind of complete control. What is interesting, and, um, and I think it's important to say, I, I call communist fascists also, that the left-right thing doesn't mm -hmm. work in that particular way. 
And in 91, after the wall came down, I, was, uh, I did one of the things that I found truly interesting, which was to do a survey of all of Europe um, about how people felt after the end of the wall. And we did questionnaires and focus groups. And a focus group I will never forget was of a man outside of Moscow who stood up and said, I'm so embarrassed. We used to be a superpower, and now we're Bangladesh with missiles. Mm -hmm. And so what happened was that Putin kind of plugged into that, what I was saying, the loss of national pride, of embarrassment, humiliation. And so he picked that up. And for me, Putin is a KGB officer. He knows how to uh, manipulate and to use propaganda. And I think that the main thing is how to reassert kind of Russia's power in a number of ways. But uh, he has come pretty close in terms of saying that the people that went into Ukraine were just little green men and not part of a military. But I do think he is an authoritarian leader with very close tendencies. I, try, I have tried very hard not to identify people as fascists because my book is a warning. And some people think it's alarmist, and it's supposed to be because I am worried about a number of the things that are going on and that I do think we need to make clear that they're happening before we get full-blooded fascists. How strong do you think Vladimir Putin's grip is on power? Well, I think that it's a, the following thing. The economy of Russia is certainly not doing well. Mm -hmm. um, an awful lot depends on oil prices and uh, a variety of things. By the way, one of the things that I, I think is important to say, I don't think we won the Cold War. I think they lost it. Mm -hmm. And that's not just a, um, a you know, language, but a real thing, because what happened was that communism doesn't work. It collapsed. The economic parts of it didn't work. And he has not put it back together in any shape or form. And so the economic situation, whenever I read about Russia, their growth rate is down. They really are not doing well. So what he is doing is working off of that man who's uh, embarrassed and making Russia great again. And so I think that uh, that is one of the things that he is kind of plugged into that nationalist aspect. And then showing that Russia, by the way, has reintroduced itself into a position of power in the Middle East and has pushed the, not just what they did in Georgia, but also in Ukraine, um, and some of the threatening things that they've been doing against the Baltic states. So um, I think that is what he's doing. And he has plugged into that nationalist theme um, in a way that keeps him in power because the people are not doing that well. And not helping in Venezuela either right now. Not at all, right? Yeah. Of course, I'm sure we talked about the Magnitsky Act. How do you see its strength right now, and is it effective? Well, <clears throat> uh, let me just say, if I might, that I teach at Georgetown, I do. I say foreign policy is just trying to get some country to do what you want. That's all it is. <clears throat> so what are the tools? And so my course is the National Security Toolbox. Mm -hmm. And the bottom line is we are the most powerful country in the world, but there are not a lot of tools in the toolbox. Uh, there's diplomacy, bilateral and multilateral, the economic tools of aid and trade and sanctions, the threat of the use of force, the use of force, uh, intelligence and law enforcement, mm -hmm. that's it. And statecraft is what do you use when. So the Magnitsky Act comes into the sanctions part of it. Right. And one of the things that does happen, sanctions are used more and more often because they are the middle option. 
um, as you know from you know, doing international relations all the time, is um, diplomacy may seem weak and force too strong, so there is, out of that toolbox, sanctions are picked. The Magnitsky Act is very useful because it identifies individuals that are corrupt, uh, that are um, doing um, things to undermine the international system. Part of the issue is whether, um, I mean, Congress can uh, pass the Magnitsky Act, mm -hmm. but it takes the executive branch to carry it out. And there have been questions about why it's taken so long to identify who needs to be um, uh, sanctioned under the Magnitsky Act, but also how the sanctions are carried out. But I think it is a very useful aspect, and I do think that one of the parts that I find the most interesting about our government is the relationship between the executive and legislative branches. And what I teach in my class is that every one of the tools, if you're really an honest person, honest leader, has to be activated by Congress. Mm -hmm. And so the Magnitsky Act, I think, was a very important uh, initiative. It's also very important for other countries to support whatever sanctions we're putting in place. Well, absolutely. So one of the discussions we have in class is there are bilateral sanctions by one country or multilateral. And it is much better if you have multilateral sanctions. And so sometimes those are put on by the United Nations. Sometimes the European Union has a set of act sanctions measures that support. Uh, but it's, mu it's much better if they're multilateral. And one of the real problems these days is that they're not totally multilateral. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, it's easy to forget that Mussolini and Hitler were both elected. And we see that so often that authoritarian leaders, and in certain cases fascists, have won at the ballot box. Well, this is the part that I decided that one of the things that I wanted to do and did um, as I was thinking about the book was to give it historical context. Mussolini was the first fascist. Um, and what happened was Italy was uh, humiliated or felt they had fought on the side of the Allies during World War I, were not recognized enough, were um, really supported in any way in that. There was anger in Italy. A lot of people had died mm -hmm. uh, as a result of the war, and they were kind of ignored. And so all of a sudden, this man, uh, who was an outsider, Mussolini, actually he had begun as a lefty, uh, and then uh, changed over to the right side, and he created the fascists. The, the name comes from these plants, fasces, and an axe, and that became their symbol. Uh, he was um, somebody that exerted his um, charm and his capability of talking well. Um, and what happened, because problems were going on in Italy, King Emmanuel actually asked him to take over, so he took power constitutionally. In what happened in Germany was uh, the humiliation of Versailles Treaty and reparations and then the mm -hmm. financial crisis in the Weimar Republic and President von Hindenburg asked Hitler uh, to become Chancellor, Vice Chancellor. So they, they were illegal. I mean, that's the part mm -hmm. that kind of blew my mind. The thing that was interesting, my best quotes actually come from Mussolini, and the best quote in the whole book is that Mussolini said, if you pluck a chicken, one feather at a time, nobody will notice. So there's a lot of feather plucking going on right now. Uh, and by the way, you can't say those two words together too quickly. <laughs> there's other words and phrases that have also evolved through this period yeah, of time. Yeah, right. 
Well, and then I, I have to, I, I love to bring this quote because I, uh, Mussolini once said to a reporter, often I would like to be wrong, but so far it has never happened. There's other language too that Mussolini used. Oh, uh, yes, he did think it was important to drain the swamp in Italian. So that moves us now to a little <laughs> yeah. discussion of President Trump. You are very concerned, and that's one of the reasons you've been out speaking so much. It's not just to sell books, but you do have concern about the direction of our country and how President Trump views democracy. I am very troubled. And by the way, I'm asked often if I think he's a fascist. I do not call him a fascist. I think he is the least democratic president in modern American history. And what I'm troubled by is the following. First of all, that they're really, what I said about exacerbating the differences is something that he did during the campaign and he's doing now in so many different ways in terms of identifying with one group at the expense of another. And partially what has happened, the other group, this started basically with Hitler, um, is to have a group be a scapegoat. Hitler picked the Jews. And I do think that what has happened in all the cases that I talk about, the countries that I look at, they pick some group as the scapegoat. And what has happened in the United States, we're picking immigrants as scapegoats. All those people that are coming across the boundaries and they, just the way that the people from Latin America are described as drug dealers and rapists and uh, scapegoating. And so that really does trouble me deeply. Then I think also the disrespect for the press in terms of calling the press the enemy of the people. And then also what I said about the judiciary. I mean, he at some point said that just because somebody was a Mexican-American, he couldn't be a good judge. And then a lot of criticism, not of the Supreme Court, but of other courts in this country. And then a total lack of understanding of what the institutional structure of the US is, and then thinking that he's above the law but I think he does not understand what American democracy is really about. I'm very, very troubled by it, and mm -hmm. every day in some new form. And so I do think that it's important to have the warning. So one of the, my sets, you know, we all know the see something, say something mm -hmm. um, thing that we talk about. I've added to that do something, and I do think it's important to call it out. I also do think that what is very important is for people either to run for office or those of us that are not is to support those who are and really understand that the politics is the discussion of how countries are run and you know for all of us to have a voice. Then the other part is I think it's very important to talk to people with whom you disagree. Mm -hmm. I don't like the word tolerance because that's put up with tolerate. I think it would be better to respect the views of others, but it's very important to listen to them and find out what's going on. I think it's important for all of us to try to listen to what others are saying. So I was so moved by the Parkland kids, and it's mm -hmm. been just about a year when that yeah, horrible event right. happened, and how they went out and marched and did town hall meetings. I really do think that this is a generation of young people that want to be involved, that have a sense of community service, and I want to listen to them. So that's my to-do list. But we can't normalize what's going on. By the way, I'm an immigrant, and what happened when we came to the United States, my father had been a Czechoslovak diplomat. We spent the war in England all through the Blitz. We went back to Czechoslovakia, and then 
he became ambassador to Yugoslavia, and then the communists took over. But when we came to the United States, my father used to say this, that when we were in England, people were very kind, and they said, we're so sorry, your country's been taken over by a terrible dictator, you're welcome here. What can we do to help you, and when are you going home? <laughs> when we came to the United States after the communists took over in 1948, people would say, we're so sorry, your country's been taken over by a terrible system, you're welcome here, what can we do to help you, and when will you become a citizen? Mm -hmm. And he said, that's what made America different from every other country. <laughs> Special thanks to the Dallas Museum of Arts, Arts and Letters Live for partnering with us on this event and Southern Methodist University for providing the venue. Be sure to rate Global IQ and share it with your friends. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org.